<laughs> um, and we're so excited to be here with you um, on the extras. So we've uh, done just uh, the first of our COVID series, Life in Lockdown, uh, just a Sunday just then, um, on what is God doing? Uh, the passages that we looked at was um, in particular in Romans 8 and two, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 18. So if you've got your Bible there with you, it would be really great to open that. Um, so we're going to kick us off. Now, sorry. Yeah. Of flicking while, you know, always good to hear paper pages flicking. It's one of my favorite sounds when we get into the Bible. Yeah. We're doing this over Zoom, so you probably can't hear mine flicking, but, you know. <laughs> um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The first question is, what does it mean what is unseen is eternal? So in particular, looking at um, verses uh, 17 to 18, I'm just going to read this out. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What does that mean? Yeah, great question, and really glad someone uh, texted it in. Uh, just, uh, I mean, initial comment, uh, this talk we were doing was meant to be more of a, I guess, a discussion and thinking systematically about a bunch of passages, a bunch of issues as we were in lockdown. And the thing that we missed out on doing was, you know, really looking close at 2 Corinthians 4, uh, which was by design, but it, you know, it's a, it's a shame at one level because this is just such a fantastic part of the Bible. And it's, it's yeah, I'm glad the questions come in because there's, there's plenty more to say about this passage. So, Jack, I think this is one of your faves, isn't it? This is one of the, my faves, yeah. I mean, this whole section, like 2 Corinthians, particularly chapters 4 and 5, is just my favorite part of the Bible. So really loving getting the chance to spend a bit more time talking about it. It's great. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So what does Paul mean by that? I think he's talking about uh, something, I mean, to start, it's, it's, it's a paradoxical phrase, isn't it? Like, fix your eyes on what is unseen. Like, look at the things that are invisible. Like, it, you know, what does that even, how does that make sense? How can you look yeah, at something like, you can't see? Yeah, it's like, look at extra x-ray radiation or something you're like what <laughs> exactly yeah so it's, it's a very interesting turn of phrase um the thing he contrasts is the things that are seen are temporary whereas what is unseen is eternal and i take it that's linking back to the verse before because the light and momentary troubles are achieving this eternal weight of glory so there he's contrasting you know our present experience in this life of trials and afflictions is a, a temporary thing you know it's momentary doesn't feel like it to us, but compared to eternity, it's nothing. So the the unseen here, I think he's talking about uh, the the things of the world to come. He's thinking about the the eternal, glorious realities of resurrected life with Jesus. He's talking about you know our, our future life in the new creation. But it's more than just future, I think, and that's really important to know. I mean, partly because he says you know fix your eyes on it. You know, if it's only far off in the future, how can we pay attention to it now? I think he's pointing us to something that is present now. The other thing that I think indicates that is verse 16. Outwardly, we are wasting away, but inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Day by day. That's like this ongoing, everyday, present reality. So I think what Paul's contrasting is these these two realms, if you like, these two ways of looking at the world. The one is, uh, you know, our, our outward, uh, our outer self, you know, in other parts of Paul's writings, he talks about... Um, our old self, he's talking about the flesh. Like, I think he's talking about both the parts of our existence and this world that are, you know, this present age, this age that is uh, under the, the, you know, the reality of sin, this age that is, you know, full of curse and crumbling and our bodies wither and decay. Like, all of that's kind of part of this, this present age marred by sin, which is passing away. Whereas what is unseen is the 
I think the realm of the spirit, the, 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 the new person that we are being, already being transformed into as Christians. He's talking about the, the reality, the spiritual reality, which is unseen. I mean, we don't, we don't see that. And I think that's part of the point here that it's easy for us to just look at the, the present world and the obvious suffering and the, you know, the affliction, our, our body is literally kind of breaking and decaying year after year. Um, but the thing that we can't see is the, the reality. That's, that's the, the, the thing that's more real, more important, more true, which is what God is doing in us by his spirit. So I think what he's saying is, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to get distracted by the, the distress on the surface that we, we're most familiar with. He's saying, look to the spiritual realities of what God is doing as he transforms us and as he you know, makes us more and more like Jesus, as he prepares us for this glory that far outweighs anything else we will see in this world. Does that make sense, Candy? Like, do you want to press into that yeah, more or think, follow up? Or? I mean, um, yeah, I think of uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, when it, uh, when it talks about what the Holy Spirit is currently doing um, in the believer, it says, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord. So seeing Jesus, we're being transformed into the same image like him, right? From one degree of glory to another. Mm. And for this comes from the Lord who's a spirit. So, I, th- I take it that that transformation of being like Jesus is unseen um, yeah. and is eternal. Um, yeah, on a very different tact, I was reading uh, to Timothy uh, this morning about um, um, about adornment and beauty and talking about kind of the, the um, you know, not uh, not adorning ourselves with kind of the external, which I think is, is um, 2 Timothy talks about, about that in, um, sorry, 1 Timothy 2. Wrong reference there, guys, sorry. Hmm. Um, but in 1 Peter 3, I mean, this is a very different tact, but um, I just found it really interesting. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Hmm. Uh, so talking to wives in particular, but I just find it really interesting to think of like the scene adorning which is external, uh, and I take it in here, it's, you know, gold and um, decking yourself up in yeah. very expensive, you know. The bling. Apparel. Bling, yeah, blinging yeah. up. <laughs> Great <laughs> word, like blinging up. Um, but, you know, in here, the emphasis is on the in the adorning of the internal person yeah. with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So I think, yeah, there is kind of a very practical example of the unseen and an eternal God work that God is doing in us, but also something the Bible, um, some something the Bible is making a distinction of elsewhere. Yeah, really helpful. Great example. Thanks. So, on the second question, um, what is the role of the Holy Spirit, and where does the Holy Spirit work? It's a massive question, and it's a great one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we were keen to save this for the extras on Sunday so that we could spend a bit more time digging into it. And I mean, there's so much you could say. I actually, as an aside, I've spent my part of my quiet times this year basically tackling that question i kind of realized last year yeah i think i I don't really appreciate the holy spirit and his work as much as i could so i this year i basically printed off like search bible gateway all the times the the word spirit comes up in the whole bible print them all off and spent the first half of the year reading through them on quiet times and there's stacks and stacks of it like i think there's about 700 references across the bible old new testament to the spirit so he does a lot Uh, so i want to point you just to three things quickly uh, to, to talk about the spirit and his work which is a start uh, but it's uh, an important start i think one of the main places we got to look is uh, john chapters 14 to 16 so the night before jesus died in you know, the so-called upper room discourse 
where Jesus is about to leave his disciples, he says a lot about the, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the counselor, uh, the, the helper who he's going to send after him to talk about what the, the, yeah, who's going to continue his work after he goes, after he ascends into heaven. Uh, so John 16 verse 12 is a, not a bad place to start. Uh, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, to the disciples, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So it already stacks in that. But some of the things you see is the spirit is a he. And that's always worth uh, remembering. The spirit is not it. You know, he's not this impersonal force. He is God, the Holy Spirit. He's a he. He's the spirit of truth. What, what he does is he he guides the disciples into truth. He takes what uh, the Father has already been saying through Jesus and the Holy Spirit's job is to remind the disciples of what Jesus has said and taught after Jesus is gone. The Spirit is the sort of ongoing teacher who will continue to teach the disciples the things which Jesus has, has already taught them. And particularly for the apostles, that means that the Spirit is the one who uh, inspires and brings the scriptures uh, to bear because the way that we got the Bible is you know, the disciples who were with Jesus, they had the Spirit given to them after Jesus went and the Spirit reminded them of all the things Jesus said, which is what they then wrote down. Uh, so the, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires the scriptures and gives us the word of God so that we can know him, so that we can know what God has said. He's a, he's a speaking spirit. That's the, that's the first thing I guess I'd want to bring up. Um, we we're going to have a look at, what's this, sorry, the next passage. Um, oh, can I just say though? Yeah, yeah, I go, go. That. Yeah, no, I just, I think it's pretty amazing because that makes me think of in John, um, in chapter 17, I think mm. when, um, when, you know, Jesus say, um, sanctify them, um, um, sanctify them by the truth. And it goes, your word is truth. Um, and it, yeah, just the fact that like, as we talk about the whole subject of how we can be more like Jesus, this, this thing of sanctification, mm. that the spirit is the one who teaches us the word. Yeah. Um, which is so directly linked to us being made more like Jesus. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, another thing I want to say, uh, going further backwards in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee who sort of comes to challenge Jesus and, you know, really test him what he knows. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, uh, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? You know, am I meant to go back into my mother's womb to be born a second time? Mm -hmm. And then Jesus says, John 3 verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So the Spirit here is the one who brings new birth. Uh, and this is, I guess, really a picture of what it means to become a Christian, to be converted. So another part of the work of the Holy Spirit is he is the, the person of the Godhead who takes the, the teaching about Jesus and takes the gospel and actually brings it to bear in our hearts in such a way that we are brought to life from being dead in our sins. Uh, we, are, we are born again by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is actively involved in, in our conversion, in seeing us reborn and remade as new creatures in the image of God. You know, uh, all of that work of taking the objective things that Jesus has done in the gospel, but actually applying them specifically to each one of us who come to believe the Holy Spirit is the one who, who gives us that life in the first place. So the second thing I want to say, yeah, work with the Holy Spirit. He, so first thing is, he, you know, he's the teacher. Uh, second, he, he converts. Uh, and the third thing I want to say is, um, he's the Spirit who 
I mean, as we've been talking about in this talk, he's the spirit who makes us more like Jesus. So um, we didn't bring this out heaps on Sunday, but uh, everything we'll be talking about, you know, as God grows us as his children in godliness and in holiness, it's the spirit who who sanctifies us. And that word means, you know, he, he makes us holy. Probably that's because of what he's called. Uh, so he's the Holy Spirit. He's the, he's <laughs> the, the spirit of holy. Yeah. It's all in the name. That's right. Yeah. He, he makes us holy because that's, that's who he is. Um, one place where I think you see that probably most clearly is um, in Galatians 5, the famous fruit of the spirit passage. Mini Candy, would you like to read those words for us? So that's uh, Galatians 5, um, 22 and 23. Yeah. Um, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Nice. And I'm sure that if you've, for those of you out there who are listening who've you know grown up in the church you've probably got like a colin buchanan memory verse or something that helps you remember those words i i didn't grow up in the church so i missed out on that but um yeah famous words but really important to remember what they're saying that those those i guess characteristics those virtues uh, you know love and joy and peace these qualities that reflect a life that is you know faith being put into practice and someone growing to be more like jesus they are the fruit of the spirit as in they're the thing that the spirit grows in us so that one of the, the, the things the Holy Spirit does is this ongoing work of growing us and bringing forth in us that fruit, that, that fruit of transformed lives and transformed character. So that's a, a very little quick you know, snapshot, the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he teaches, he converts, and he, he grows, he sanctifies. That would be my little summary of what the Spirit does. And um, yeah, everything that we've said kind of on Sunday has the Spirit in mind in the background uh, if we didn't bring about explicitly. If we're going to be made more like Jesus, yeah. it's as the Holy Spirit brings that about in us by his power and grace. And that's really um, the context of 2 Corinthians as well, because when you sort of get to 2 Corinthians, um, before chapter 4, Paul really talks about the Old Testament, you know, the the ministry of the letter and and Moses' glory versus the ministry of the Spirit um, that transform us to be like Jesus. So, yeah, it's very much in the context of that book as well. Pretty amazing. That's really helpful, yeah. Good Good pick up. Um, So, yeah, if you you guys want to think more about that, I think read the context as well. Super helpful. Nice. Um, Question three. Uh, Jack and Candy are honest to share the struggles with sinful nature. Um, I'm glad that that was helpful. I I did feel a little bit like, you know, um, I was like standing naked on a tree or something calling (laughs) for attention. It was very soul-bearing and slightly scary. (laughs) But, yes, I'm glad it was helpful. I think for both of us, there there was some rawness in that talk, which... Yeah, sounds like a lot of people resonated with, with that, which, yeah, which is part of what we we're hoping, you know, we who are, you know, on the staff at church don't want anyone to think that we're somehow on this pedestal and we're, you know, the super spiritual people who don't struggle with grumbling and sin and everything. No, like, you know, we, we are not perfect, uh, as, as we all know, but, you know, it's good to put that out in the open sometimes. Sorry, anyway, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep reading the question. Glad we can be examples of <laughs> imperfection and repentance. Um, why does it have to be so difficult to live by the spirit? Um, and in particular, sort of this person references Romans chapter eight and talks through sort of Romans chapter eight verses, um, two and verses four, where you do sort of get a very, seem very triumphant, um, view of the Christian. So, so verse two, you know, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hmm. Um, and then in verse four, right in like, Jesus has, um, God has condemned sin in the flesh. We see in order 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Yeah. But, you know, as we chat both of us about how hard it is to, to keep, re- not just how hard it is, but the reality that we are still sinful and we keep repenting. Mm. The question here is, is our sinful nature more powerful than the spirit? Like, how do you explain the incongruity between what the Bible seems to say we're meant to be like and what we're really like? That's such a great question. I love this question. So, yeah, keen to keep wrestling with it. And I, I totally resonate with it. Romans 8, it can sound quite triumphant. And, I mean, it is, you know. It's the passage that finishes, you know, not even death nor life nor angels nor rules or anything will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like, how triumphant is that? Um, but these verses, yeah, they paint a, a really powerful picture of the Spirit, that He has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now, the question I think we've got to answer to help with this question is, what is that verse saying? Is it saying that uh, the struggle against sin is over, so the Spirit has set us free, so sin should not be anymore? Or is it saying uh, the struggle against sin is now possible? Uh, as in, let, let me flesh out what I mean. So Romans 6 and 7, the chapters that come before this, have this really long kind of grappling with this concept of being enslaved to sin. So you look at uh, the kind of language that comes up in in Romans chapter 6. Uh, one of the things that uh, Jesus does is he sets us free from slavery to sin. Romans 6 verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So the picture that Paul paints of our old life before the work of Christ is we're not just sinners. We are these victims, you know, who, who call sin our master. Like we're directed by sin, we're under its power, we're under its influence. And that's kind of, you know, that's woven through chapter 6 and chapter 7. And chapter 7 ends with, you know, Paul crying out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? And he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the question is, what is the nature of that deliverance? Are we going to be instantaneously set free from sins that we don't do it anymore? Or are we going to be, uh, well, you know, just to give it away, I don't think that's the case because we do continue to wrestle (laughs) with sin in this life. So I think it's more what is the second option, which is that I think the Spirit makes our struggle against sin possible. Not easy, but possible at all. Because the picture is that under, you know, in Adam, uh, under the old way of life before Jesus, there's, there's no ability to even struggle. Like we're just under the power of sin, we're slaves to it. We have no choice but to sin in a sense. Like we, we you know, we're, we're not forced against our will to, but we, without Jesus, we just, we sin and sin and sin and we're slaves to it. We can't um, fight sin and, you know, put it to death. And Romans 8 says that as well. Romans 8 verse 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So without Jesus, you can't, you, you cannot possibly not sin. That's the, the picture we have there. And I think the, the work of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 is that's no longer the case for Christians. It's not the case that sin is such a force in our life that it's impossible for us to disobey. Like now in this new way of life in the Spirit, it's actually possible to please God. And that's how he goes on in verse 9. So, you know, those in the flesh can't please God. But verse 9, you are not in the realm of the flesh. You are in the realm of the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And so the picture we get is the Holy Spirit actually enables us to fight. Uh, he means that we're not slaves to sin anymore. It's actually possible for us to please God. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to please God. Jack, can I just ask though the question? Yeah. What if we feel like we are a slave to our sin? Like, um, you know, as I think about, um, you know, what if there's a sense that um, I, I keep lying or mm. 
I am addicted to pornography and I find it really hard to kind of come out of this and something I've been struggling with for years. Like, because uh, um, talking about that reality of not being a slave, but what if we feel like we are? Really, really good question and so important. And it's why we need these parts of the Bible, like particularly Romans chapter six to eight, because if you are in Christ, if you have, you know, admitted to God that you are a sinner and you've asked his forgiveness and Jesus has forgiven you and then you are born again, you're a new creation. And the reality is that you are not a slave to sin. And we need to hear that because I think one of Satan's lies that he loves Christians to go on believing is that I just can't do it. Like there's no way I'm ever going to escape this. There's no possibility I'm ever going to be, you know, able to grow out of this. Like the devil would just love to have us locked in that, you know, prison thinking that we're, we're just, you know, we're trapped in the power of sin. But the beautiful, liberating truth of the gospel is that that's not the case. That Jesus has broken the power of sin. That doesn't mean he's taken it all away instantaneously. Uh, I think one of the distinctions that's helpful is that um, uh, the work of Christ takes away the, the penalty of sin it takes away the power of sin, but it doesn't immediately vanquish the presence of sin. So penalty, we're not going to be punished because Jesus has taken the punishment. Power, we're not slaves to sin anymore. The spirit means that we can actually fight it. And it's hard. It's going to take time. It's not going to be uh, completely, you know, we're not going to be very perfect at this age, but it's possible because the power of sin is broken. But sin is still present. We still have this ongoing struggle because old, I guess old habits die hard. Like we are, we are still, uh, you know, it shows you how serious a problem sin is. Like it, God doesn't just snap his fingers and make it go away. Like we will battle with the rest of our lives and it's going to be hard. It's uh, it really is a fight. Like I always think of um, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, you know, I beat my body and make it my slave. Like he has this picture of really grueling hard work to get his, his flesh and his, his impulses under control by the grace of God. But it's, you know, we work hard at it. Um, so coming back to the question, yeah. So someone who, um, who feels like, yeah, whatever the, the issue is, it's just unbeatable. Part of the battle is realizing that it's not unbeatable. It's unbeatable on your own strength. Like if you just try harder, uh, that is not going to be enough. But by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, we can fight sin. We can grow. We can uh, begin to, to grow in that battle. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard, hard fought battles. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that it, it should be easy or it should be, which is exactly where this whole question is, isn't it? Yeah. What would yeah, you want to add, Candy? Um, I mean, not much. It's a really good good coverage of it. Um, and in some sense, you know, I think of that uh, like a very straightforward answer to why is it so difficult to live by the Spirit is because we're just very, very deeply sinful. Mm. Um, and often, uh, as I reflect on my own life, I haven't had the opportunity to sin um, sometimes in the, in the way that opportunities like haven't come up. So I'll, I'll give an example, right? Uh, you know, when I was 15, I probably didn't struggle with like, say like, oh, coveting, owning a house mm. in the way that I do in my twenties and thirties, uh, because I just, it just wasn't something that I, you know, that was, I felt, I felt need in life. Um, and so I think we, we will have different life circumstances um, and temptations. And yeah. so, and so, yeah, I think a part of it is that it, um, we will deal with new things as they come up and we continue to rely on God's grace as that happens. Um, yeah. On the fourth question, um, thinking about the two C's and the P's about <laughs> our, and, and in particular, 
<laughs> if you were there on Sunday, you know, this great, you know, acronym we've come up to help you. Very good teaching moment there. Remind us again, um, what are the two C's and the P? Yeah, so um, we're talking about this pandemic and exposing two, uh, two C's and a P, character, conviction and passions. So um, who we are, what we believe and what we love. In the last point, this person in particular had a question about exposing our love, like our passions. Should we use this time to examine whether we love God for himself? How do we love God himself rather than things that he gives us? Such a good question. Again, I, I've been saying that a lot, but these are just all uh, just really thoughtful questions. And I love it. Yeah, I just really love to hear people wrestling. Um, should we use this time to examine whether we love God for himself? Absolutely. I think that's an important thing for us to uh, examine our hearts on in any situation. But certainly, you know, when we have, you know, plenty of uh, things going on to remind us that this was not the way it should be. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, how would you do that? I mean, how would you identify that? What would it look like to not love God for himself? Um, yeah, Candy, can you hear your thoughts on that? I think, well, I think the story of Job is the story of this challenge, right? Because in Job chapter one, verses nine to 11, um, like referencing that, what you see here is the devil, you know, talking to God and saying, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possession have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And that's the challenge. Um, when the things that are good in our life gets taken away, do we then curse God to his face? Mm. Um, do we reject him? Do we, do we, do we get really angry with him? And even I would, you know, dare to say, do we kind of harbor this resentment and hatred in our heart, which then I think exposes the fact that we have always just loved God or in our mixed kind of love for God, we have loved the things that he gives us, the gifts that he's given us more than we love him for himself. And we see that Job doesn't do that. Um, Job says, mm. naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed to be the name of the Lord. Yeah. Now, at this point, his, his wife is like, just curse God and die. You know, mm. like God's in charge of doing, like God's taken all this stuff away from you. Curse him. Um, and I, yeah, I think that how we can tell sometimes it really is, what the story of Job, you know, teaches us is what happens when God doesn't give us the spouse that we want. Yeah. When when God doesn't give us, you know, the finance level of financial security, or when our job gets threatened, mm. um, when our health gets threatened, and they're very very sad and uh, significant things, even with Job, right? Like his his family, his wealth, his own health, um, those things are under threat. So I think that's one way that we can we can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the, the practical thing there is you can ask yourself, if you're trying to examine, is this thing an idol for me? Uh, would life be unlivable if it was taken away? Maybe that's a question you can ask yourself. Yeah. I and often it's... it's when those things are taken away that, um, you know, it, it kind of, how we have always felt about it rises to the surface. Mm. Um, and Top in life that will happen because we will get sick. Yeah, <laughs> you know we will have you know family troubles and things like that. Um, another way I can think about it is just I think another way is helpful. The Bible does provide very concrete um, words on love, like rather than loving God. So in two Timothy chapter three, you know verses two to four, we've got like 
lovers of self, mm. lovers of money, not loving good, loving pleasure rather than loving God. Um, so we've got like self, money, not failing to love what is good, loving pleasure. And we've got 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. And then verse 16, it talks about what those things are. It's the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So I think yeah, those are sort of also very concrete things that are good to pray and ask God. It's a you know, in a very way, it's a very daring prayer to ask yeah. God if, if those things are true. Um, and in Psalm 139, in the study we've done, um, yeah, that's what David ends up praying. David ends up praying that God would inspect him, mm. test his heart, you know, show him the way everlasting. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, Jack, what do you think? Um, that's all really helpful, yeah. And they're good questions to examine yourself on. I think another thing, and to take this question in a slightly different direction, um, I think it can be possible to react to this issue and say, well, the solution's got to be basically just cut yourself off from all sort of good things in the world. Like if... You know, you're tempted by um, the pleasures of this world, whether it's sex or money or, you know, even just, you know, good things to eat, like whatever it is, like there's these things that we can take from God and just make them gods in themselves. Um, so like, yeah, just get rid of them. Just, you know, kind of live a really basic lifestyle and be as frugal as you can and don't enjoy anything in the world because that'll mean yeah, just you can sit, enjoy sit God. Yeah, just sit on top of a pillar. Yeah, sit exactly. on top of a pillar, isn't it? Like those, um, I don't even know what they're called. You know? Oh, that's a great example. Yeah. Um, Simeon the Stylite was his name. He's this figure from church history in like the third or fourth century where, yeah, he literally just lived on top of a column, like exposed to the elements, you know, had some mates bring him food, that kind of thing. But he was like, that's, that's it's amazing. That's the picture of utter devotion to God, right? Just cut yourself off even from even from having a bed. Like he just had a little, you know, one square meter kind of block to sit on. Um, I think that is like at one level, there's something, you know, kind of noble in that. But at the same time, I just don't think it's a very good reflection of the bible because the bible also paints the picture that the world god has made is good and the things that he's created are good in themselves and they're also meant to point us to his goodness like we read you know psalm 19 the the heavens declare the glory of god and the skies proclaim his praise like a beautiful sunset is something that is there for us to enjoy because it's beautiful but it's meant to point us to god and his glory and the author of all beauty who's given us those things to enjoy so they would point us back to him. Um, 1 Timothy 4 is a really important passage. 1 Timothy um, 4, you got, you know, there are some people, the false teachers, uh, you know, telling people not to get married and abstain from foods because that's the picture of godliness, right? You abstain from the things of this world. But Paul says, uh, verses 4 and 5, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. The things God gives us are good and they're good if we thank him for it and if we direct the praise and the glory to him as the one who gives all good things. I was reading this book just yesterday, actually, that um, I think put this really helpfully. So I want to read a quote. Um, I'm reading this book called On the Road with St. Augustine by a guy named James K.A. Smith. And he's a philosopher and a theologian. And he's written this book that's all about um, Augustine, the one of the great church fathers who lived in kind of the three and four hundreds AD. In this chapter, he's talking about um, Augustine's early life where one of the big struggles in Augustine's life was his his wrestle with his own, um, I guess, you know, love and desire for sex. And he had this really kind of, um, you know, unbridled lust through his youth and that kind of thing. And Augustine spends a lot of time talking about that. Um, but then 
he kind of uh, the the author of this book is reflecting on um, does that mean sex in itself is bad? And he says says no. It's it's a good gift that God's given in the right context. And this is what he says more generally. When I stop looking to some facet of finite creation to feed a hunger for the infinite, I don't have to reject or detest creation. To the contrary, in a sense, I get it back as a gift, as something to be small e enjoyed, as a way to big e enjoy the creator who made it. It's when I stop over expecting from creation that it becomes something I can hold with an open hand, lightly, but gratefully. Now it's quite dense, so you know, skip back 30 seconds in your podcast app if you want to listen to that again. But I think the point that he's getting across is that one option is for us to just take hold of things of this world and love them and just seek to get all of the marrow out of them as if that's going to make life good. But we over-expect from creation. Like if we're just trying to, you know, get all our meaning from the things that God has given, they're going to disappoint because they don't satisfy what is in our hearts, this longing for the infinite. But if we turn to God and we do find our rest ultimately in him, then the things God has given, we, we get back in a sense, as in we've given them up as ultimate, but we get them back as a gift to be held lightly but gratefully like we don't need to grasp onto the things of this world because we've got god and he's better than all of them but god's still given us those good things for us to enjoy and then enjoyment is meant to point us to our ultimate enjoyment in god himself mm. do you have any thoughts and, in light of that Kenny? yeah like i you know at the at the heart of kind of um how do we love god for god i guess it's it's the same as i guess how you um but seeing the seeing the goodness of God, because um, to be honest, I have to say, you know, all of us, at least for me, myself, I can say very frankly, you know, when I first became a Christian, I did really love God for the things that he gave me, mm. um, you know, uh, and I mean, it could be the material blessing, but, you know, I kind of just saw God as this person who is going to, you know, um, you know, give me peace, give me comfort um and, and make my life better mm. you know um in a very in yes in an eternal way but also in in other ways as well um and then you know you sort of suffer as a christian and it causes you to ask yourself the question as things are taken away yeah how do i feel about god now mm. um and and to love god really is is to you know what we see in paul's life for example is he's just absolutely captivated by christ he says, you know, the love of Christ compels, compels him, compels mm. us. Um, he says, you know, that that he could say um, that Jesus loved him and gave himself for me. You know, um, he yeah. could say things like Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Um, that, but you know, God was demonstrating His patience with Paul, just Paul's understanding of the way that Christ loved him. And that being such a motivating force in his life that he loved ultimately you know we love god because he first loved us yeah and we we see his love for us and his kindness and his beauty and we're drawn to him and that makes us love him for him when yeah. we know who he is yeah nice this has been a long answer but it's such an important yeah. question i want to say one one last i promise one last thing on this question um <laughs> Just to bring it back to the question, the end of the question was, how do we love God himself rather than the things he gives us? I think one practical suggestion there is to just be really regular in the practice of giving thanks to, for the good things that he gives us. And I'll give you another quote because I love quotes, but um, this is a guy named G.K. Chesterton who was actually a 
a Roman Catholic guy, but you know, really important kind of public Christian figure in the early 20th century. And he has this wonderful quote where he says, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the, before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. I mean, you can tell from that list of activities there, like, you know, he's obviously this early 20th century, you know, English public schoolboy. Um, but like the, the point there, I think it's just beautiful. Like we have this habit of, you know, we pray and thank God for the food before we eat it. That's a good thing. But everything good, every, every pleasure, every joy in life is ultimately from God. So give him the thanks before it. And that habit of just stopping to thank God for the little good things he gives, I think it's a great way to make sure you're loving God rather than the gifts. Mm. Yeah. In Romans 1, we see that, isn't it? Like they fail to give him thanks mm. or to glorify him. That being such a root problem, Yeah. not glorifying or thanking God. Um, last question. Let's bring it home. Could it be that through the COVID pandemic, God is more interested in turning the hearts of non-believers to him than the perceived sufferings and hardships that we are suffering? So to put it shortly, you know, like, it seems like this talk where we're kind of talking about the Christian and us being being made more like Christ. But could it be that actually God is just more interested in helping people who don't know him to know him at this time than doing that kind of work in us? My short answer is it's both and. It's not like a God cares more about seeing unbelievers converted than believers grow. God cares about both those things. And God does both those things through these more general times of hardship. Another thing I want to pick up, like I, we, we tackled this question on Sunday night, but I didn't notice it at the time. But um, one thing that I found interesting here is this person has um, put it as uh, the perceived sufferings and hardships that we are suffering. And I don't know who texted this in. I don't, I don't know what, um, what what exactly you're thinking. But I wonder, is that is that a slight dig at this time? Like, you know, these we, we're going through, as Christians, we have these perceived sufferings and hardships as if to imply they're not really hardships. And that's that's an interesting question to explore. Um, like on one hand, I kind of get where that person's coming from. Like you look at the things that Paul suffered and his regular beatings and imprisonments and persecution for the name of Christ. And in a sense, what we're going through is like, it's pretty minor compared to that, right? Like, you know, many of us are, you know, feeling down and flat and, you know, monotony and everything, but like no one's no one's thrown a rock at my head so far in lockdown. You know, there's still time to go. Like maybe maybe it'll come, but probably not. Um, so I think it's important to um, recognize that things aren't as bad as they could be. That's worth saying. I mean, all, like it's also worth knowing, I don't know, for, for some people, like there is really awful suffering going on. Like it's not just perceived. Like, you know, this, this disease has killed probably up to 4 million people around the world so far or something like that. And that's however many more millions of people who are bereaved and grieving the loss of someone they loved who, you know, maybe they didn't even get to be there by their sign while they died. Like, you know, it's, it's been horrific in many ways, the things that have happened in this, this lockdown time. So I don't want to, sorry. Yeah, you go. No. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, uh, it makes me think of, just all the um, medical staff that I know mm. and just how intense life is for them at the moment, months on end of basically, you know, wearing PPE at work every day and, and fearful of bringing home COVID to your family, yeah. um, living with people vulnerable. But yeah, like I, I, yeah, I, I get the question of perceived suffering and hardships. The other thing I also think about is um, 
you know, when I went overseas sort of to a country where if you, you know, people who say they're Christian pretty much, you know, can lose their job. Mm. Um, and the, the government is officially, you know, atheistic and will persecute Christians um, and seek to control the church, you know? So like there are very much like in the past was imprisoned before and things like that and beaten up. Um, and when I came back, you know, the, what I realized in the, in a, in a sense, like, I mean, I only went short term, so, you know, I can't really say very definitively, but definitely my own kind of reflection is it is actually hard to be a Christian in Australia mm. in the sense that the seduction is so strong. The seduction of like wealth, the seduction of our security, the, the sense of we can be Christians without giving up too much. And so we, we avoid the raised eyebrow. We're so scared of that. Um, you know, in there, in, it's in those countries or it's in that country I was in, it's almost like you don't have a choice. Mm. You're already like, if you say you're Christian immediately, it's already going to be hard. Yeah. Whereas here we can say we're Christian, but seek still kind of live in a worldly way. And, and that is very attractive. Like, yeah. So I think it's almost like there's a carrot of the seduction and then there's the fear of the stick, the persecution, mm. um, which makes it, yeah, like, I don't know, it, it's very, it's much more subtle in here. And I think yeah. that's why it is more dangerous. But that was my reflection um, yeah, in so, terms of relating with God. Not sure if that's answering the question at all. But. I'm hearing you say, like, you know, we don't want to underestimate the the challenges that we face living in, in our society as Christians, that Satan's yeah. subtlety yeah. and our, our penchant to underestimate him is one of our dangers. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's it's you know if if we can say we're Christian, um, but still kind of, yeah. Like I, I don't think that's something it was when I was in the other country. It wasn't as easy to. You really couldn't just say you're a Christian and still live half-heartedly. Yeah. Because as soon as you've made that statement, you have pretty much gone against the government, gone against people in your family, gone against you know your employers. So it's like, mm. well, if you're gonna say that, then there's gonna be consequences. Um, and I think yeah, that that brings. And, and us doing that here, not having that, brings with it a separate set of challenge in yeah. the power of seduction. But, yeah. Yeah, well said. All right, again, I want to say one last, 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 last thing on this question. Um, I reckon this question, so <laughs> we've, we've digressed, haven't we? So is, is God, you know, more interested in uh, turning the hearts of unbelievers than the sufferings of Christians at the moment? I guess one of the, the questions to ask back at the question is... Um, Sorry, not a question, but I think sometimes we can have this assumption that, that the main thing that God's doing is people who don't know him, they get to hear the gospel, they repent and believe, they get to be saved, and that's wonderful. And then the rest of life as a Christian is just sort of like the waiting room almost. It's like the decisive thing has happened, you become a Christian, so now you're just kind of you know, marking time, I guess, until either we die or we go to glory or Jesus comes back. I think salvation, as it's pictured in the Bible, is a much broader thing. Like God is saving sinners but his work in us when we are before we're Christians and his work in us as Christians are both part of that process. Um, justification is this one-off thing that you believe and you're justified and that's done. But salvation is a bigger category. Um, a verse that I often think of on this is the first part of 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Peter's you know got this great praise and uh, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who's given us new birth into this living hope. Uh, and he's talking about this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And he says, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation 
that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the way Peter puts it is salvation is still to come. And right now, you know, in the context of Peter, he's talking about the whole of 1 Peter is about suffering, like great persecution going on. And God is shielding his people, guarding their faith, protecting them, helping them to endure suffering, growing them through it, looking towards that salvation that's still to come. So we don't want to just think like, oh, you know, once God has saved someone, you know, saved inverted commas as in they've become a believer, that's done. Like the work that God is doing growing us in holiness, helping us to have our faith refined by fire. That is part of saving us. Like we will not stand before Jesus saved on the last day if we give up and throw in the towel and, you know, if we crumble under this suffering. Like what God is doing in Christians to to grow them is a part of him saving sinners. So both those things matter heaps. Yes, God is using the suffering to call people to himself for the first time. And God is using suffering to, to hone us and help us to grow in holiness so that we'd be ready to meet him. Both those things are just crucially important in seeing sinners saved. Thank you, Jack. And thanks for all of your questions. We hope that um, the extras has been helpful this week. A couple of deep dives, you know, but that's that's what we're, we're here for. So we hope that those of you who are tuning in, yeah, that, that there's something thought-provoking here, something to challenge what you believe and something to challenge, you know, how you're living. Um, that's what we're keen to do. We're all hoping to, under God, by his power, grow through this time and through all times, yeah. But thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>